do we fix historic inequalities that continue to plague people of color, particularly in the corporate world? It is clear that our citizens are no longer comfortable with their traditional approaches to addressing racial inequality. The ones that contain the right language and practices, but are mostly symbolic and ultimately yield slow and often insignificant change. And so this podcast, The Equalizer Project was born through conversations with leaders who can share rich, complex, and powerful experiences of life in corporate America. I hope to bring awareness, to heal, to inspire. It is part of my calling, my personal mission to change lives, to leave others better off. This is the work of the Equalizer Project podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Equalizer Project. I am Brenda Ross Doolin, Managing Principal of the Ross Doolin Group, and I am so excited to be your host today. Today, we are incredibly honored to have a conversation with an extraordinary woman. Her name, none other than Robin Billups. Robin Billups is founder and CEO of the Billups Group, a dynamic consulting firm that brilliantly connects women and minority-owned companies to large corporations, allowing these companies and their local economies to grow and thrive. Affectionately known as The Connector, she leverages more than 30 years in the financial services industry to advise both novice and savvy businesses on the nuances of doing business with corporate America. With a heart for the underserved and the underrepresented communities, she passionately advocates for diverse businesses as a public speaker and advisor to numerous decision makers at Fortune 500 companies. Robin is known for her advocacy, her coaching, her collaboration, and quite frankly, her straight talk. Robin, thank you so much for being here. Brenda, thank you for having me. You know, again, we really appreciate the fact that you've created a platform for us to share a knowledge and to experience each other's um, experiences and, and life walk. And so again, I thank you for having me. Um, you know me, you know that I'm a straight shooter. I'm a straight talker. I don't, I, I have one personality. Yes. And, and when you meet me, you've met me, you know, and, um, and, and I'm, I'm very proud of that. I'm very, very proud of that. Well, absolutely. And that's one of the things that I really do appreciate and certainly love about you. So I know a lot about you and I've certainly shared uh, the highlights of your career, but I do want you to take a moment and talk a little bit of, about yourself, your background. Um, and I would even go a little bit further and say your beliefs and your philosophy, because they they are so incredibly powerful in explaining the impact that you have and how all of that has influenced the, the current work that you do. I love that question because it does give me an opportunity to honor my mother for one. My mother is my mother was born on Valentine's Day 93 years ago 
Her mother died in childbirth. My mother has six children. We were raised in St. Louis and my mother never said she was a single mom. She always just said she has six kids. You know, she didn't tell the daddies to leave, they left. And so with that, you know, my mission in life has always been to honor who she is. And we were raised in a church, you know, I'm a church girl and I'm very, very proud of that. You know, people call me Reverend Rob and I always tell them that means you're listening to my testimony then if you're calling (laughs) me that, you know. Uh, I'm a middle kid, I'm a middle girl, two older sisters, two younger sisters, my brother and I are in the middle. And I am a true middle kid. You know, I want I want attention. I'm going to be loud. I'm going to be boisterous. I'm a happy person. I want everybody else to be happy. And I'm what I would call my mother's old reliable. You know, that's the reason why I live on the West Coast, because I was the reliable kid. You know, I've been responsible all of my life. And as a kid growing up, you know, my two older sisters um, didn't grow up with us in the household when we were younger. And so my mom depended on me. And I said to myself, you know, my job was to do what she asked me to do, to be ahead of what she was asking, and also to lay below the radar screen, because I don't know about you, but I thought my mother was crazy. You know, (laughs) when she said she was going to kill you, I I believed her. So I would go and try to do everything that was (laughs) needed to be done so that she wouldn't, I wouldn't be in, you know, but, but again, Rose believed in a wholesale whooping. So one was getting it, all four of us got it, you know, so that, that kind of didn't work, but um, we, we were raised in the church. And when I was 10 years old, one of my mother's childhood friends would come and visit us while she was dating my stepdad that she's been with now forever. Um, he would come and preach to us and he didn't know he was being called into the ministry. He was literally babysitting us, but we were his practice preaching. Right. And so (laughs) when he told us about the three little Hebrew boys, I'm 10 years old and it it just clicked that I'm a nevertheless girl, no matter what Mm. God said it, I believe it. No matter what you think or you believe this is who I am. I am a never, I've been that I'm 66. I've been that since I was 10 years old. I've known who I am and whose I am. And I do believe that um, I believe the word. I truly believe the word. And I tell people today, you know, touch me when you see me because I'm a walking miracle. I was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma at 62 years old. And I told the Lord, now look, and my mother's like, you know, mother brought water. Right. You know, there's Rose and then there's Mother Broadwater. Mother Broadwater <laughs> says, well, you can't tell. The, I say, Rose, get in your lane with God. This is me telling the Lord, okay, you gave this to me. I'm upset about it, but I'm giving it back to you. What I'm going to do is go do what you've charged me with. I have a family. I have kids. I have grandkids. I have my community work that I'm doing. I have my consulting work. I'm going to con- continue to do that. And I told my church members, don't ask me how I'm doing because the answer is always going to be, um, I'm working on my testimony. You know, my mission is to be a testimony to my family, to my God, to my church, to my community, to my friends, you know, and so that's who I am. And so when you talk about um, how does this lead to my current work, you know, my God sister and I always talk about the fact that she runs multicultural marketing for um, a big bank. And we both started these jobs in supplier diversity and multicultural marketing at U.S. Bank. And we, we cobbled our experiences together. So what I always say chase the marketable skills, not the money, right? Mm -hmm. And so if you chase the skill set, you learn to negotiate money. You're not afraid to ask for your money. But more importantly, you have a set of skills that can be transferable depending on what's happening in the marketplace. I came to Los Angeles with a degree in journalism from the University of Missouri, one of the best journalism schools in the world. Mm -hmm. I was a senior class officer. I worked a 40-hour job. I recruited athletes. I pledged AKA. I did all of that stuff while I was there and came to LA and could not buy a job in public relations. 
after four interviews with the one company that hired everybody that I worked with in graphics at the University of Missouri. And wow. so um, that was the first time that I didn't win. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a 70s teenager, right? So I'm one of those people like you, you know, some of us were just the first one, the only one, you know, when my mother didn't, my mother didn't believe in being uncomfortable. No, you're going. She right. truly believed in exposure. She truly believed that. And she drilled that into me. You know, I was the brown girl with hair down to my elbows. I modeled no fat, nowhere. I was fine. I mean, I was fine, fine, fine <laughs> those days. Okay. And so with that, my mother drilled into me. Don't you worry about what anybody else has to say. You know, what's most important is what you think, how, how you walk, how you look, how you carry yourself, your morals, your characters, your standard. And so those are the, that's the platform of what, of, and the foundation of who I am. And so my current work, um, you know, advocacy, you know, all of us are advocates. Mm-hmm. It's just some people are scared to use their voice. And being a middle kid, I've never been scared to use my voice. You know, coming from a very boisterous black family, I've never, you know, you got to get, you got to get in where you fit in, you know, so you have to find that opportunity, you know, to say what you have to say, even if nobody agrees with you, you still say that, right? This coming to the West Coast and being here with no family, newly married, fresh out of college, um, I ended up with one of my husband's friends girlfriend um, actually worked at the bank as a teller while she was going to Cal Poly Pomona. And she told me about this management training program. And that's how I kind of fell into banking. I became Mm -hmm. a management trainee. And I look at that time, uh, Brenda, in San Diego, we're talking in late seventies in San Diego, there was 25 white males on my selection committee. I'm 20 something years old. I'm new to California. I don't know banking at all, but I had a, a gift of gap you know, and I, and I knew what I was talking about, you know, I only talk about what I know about. Right. Right. And so I was selected and that's how I fell into lending and was able to, again, obtain a set of marketable skills. And when the supplier diversity position opened up at U.S. Bank, I said, I can do that. And then I had to go Google the word because I had never heard of supplier (laughs) diversity. (laughs) But it is that thing of not being, you know, I'm scared. I'm shaking, I'm shaking in my boots, but I'm not scared. Right. Right. Because if you're shaking in your boots, you're acknowledging that there is some fear there. Right. Right. But 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 if you don't do that, then you won't do anything. So I always say I'm shaking in my boots, but I'm moving. I'm still going to move. I'm still going to act. I'm still going to step out there. You know, right. 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 (laughs) Knowing that he will open and close doors. Right. Right. So if he opens the door, keep walking. If he closes that door, you know, you have your pity party, you get 15 minutes worth of pity party. And then the pity party's over. Now you got to move to the next thing, you know, yeah. that kind of thing. So, yeah. Well, you know, what was so, what was so, um, so fascinating of, of, about your story, which many people can actually relate to. Yeah. And that is, you know, you come out of school, you studied one thing, you end up in something very different. When you came out, you went through this management training program. You found yourself uh, in commercial real estate construction lending, which is certainly not an area where there is a lot of diversity whatsoever. Talk about that transition. And then you, you actually then took that where you were exceptional in that space. And then you moved over to supplier diversity, which really allowed you to to really leverage that philosophy, that focus you have on making a difference and, 
and, and impacting the community. So talk a little bit about the commercial real estate piece and how that transition to supplier diversity. So and you'll appreciate this and all of our sorrows will too, you know, that when you're an Ivy and you're pledging and it says, so let my life like an Ivy be a helped man and a reaper thee, mm-hmm. I, that resonates in my mind so regularly. So what happened, what had happened was <laughs> I ended up as a, when I, I was in this pro- training program for about nine months. And I think that's one of the things that the corporations have messed up on. They still need to have management training programs. You need to, you need to bring a cohort of, of young professionals in that you're gonna train and introduce them to your company and then let them find what best worked for them as far as their um, as far as their 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 passion and their desire is, right? Mm-hmm. So what happened for me, I actually interviewed for this management training program. And in my mind's eye, because I was public relations, business development, mm-hmm. I was going to become a branch manager. Well, when I got through the training and when I got to the lending part of it, it gave me everything that I need. Storytelling, mm-hmm. beginning, middle, and end. You know, um, it gave me an opportunity to learn something new and to know that every day that I made a loan, I was in, I was helping somebody's personal wealth, you mm. know, their their longevity, you know, that type of thing. So I became a management trainee and then I got off the program. I actually went to Glendale and told this guy, you know, you have a position open and I think I'm your candidate because I was tired of being a management trainee. (laughs) (laughs) So I told Larry Rossi that I needed this um, position and he goes, wait a minute, I haven't even posted it yet. And I said, I've been through personnel and I've been looking at all of these positions, right? And so I became a a, a loan officer, junior loan officer, single family credit cards, lines of credit, consumer loans, you know, that kind of stuff. And then I kept looking at these guys who were making all of the money. Mm -hmm. They worked a half a day right? They would come back from their clients and they would tell everybody, cut off your, your, your calculators and your, your typing machines, typewriters, and come upstairs because we're about to party. And I'm like, I want to do that. Well, at that time, women were not allowed to be in major loans or, consume, mm-hmm. or com- commercial lending back in the day. Mm-hmm. And so I took a pay cut and a job uh, cut in order to become a junior loan officer at Sears Savings Bank back in the day. And Bob Friday took a, was trusted me enough to be. He said, I can offer you this, but you're going to have to be a junior loan. I was willing to do it because I saw that commercial real estate is real estate, mm. but it's at a bigger scale. You know, it's now you can drive down the street and say, I built that. I financed that. That's my client, you know, that type of thing. And so my kids were, you know, so accustomed to doing the site business with me for the residential stuff. But mm. when I started doing the commercial stuff, you know, I, I kind of got bigger strikes from them. Right. Right. So so I ended up to your point, I did end up learning everything I've learned. I've never been to American banking school. I was that was not that employee that anyone would say, let me put you under my wings and let me send you to American banking school or send you to this training or that training. But I've had three exceptional men in my life who were my managers who were very entrepreneurial in their mindset and very much believed in me and 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 allowed me to be an entrepreneur in their department. And uh, so with that, um, I morphed into commercial real estate and, and then par- subsequently morphed into affordable housing. Mm-hmm. And when I turned 50, I say, you know, and I, I tell people all the time, you know, Mike Milken, while, while they sent him to the country club jail, he taught me how to drink Tattinger champagne. He taught me what a closing was. You know, I was an underwriter in secondary market because there was secondary market underwriting when, we, when I was a lender. Mm-hmm. And then they took all of that away. And then we ended up with the debacle. 
right? So, you know, a lot of times people don't really understand how the, the how things implode. And the implosion came from greed. It strictly came from greed. When you take underwriting out of the process, right. and now you got no docs, low docs, you know, fill in the blank. You know, well, no, you don't have to fill in the bank, just sign your name. And you end up with the debacle that we have right now, which is just mm-hmm. a natural mess. But, um, but, but there is a way to do lending that allows everybody to participate. And that's the reason why I wanted to be in lending so that our voices and, and our clients that look like us could actually um, afford be represented in the lending space. And so when I turned 50, I kept saying to myself that there was such thing as age, race, and sex discrimination. Mm. And I said, Robin, and I'm, I'm very strategic about, you know, looking at my money and where I'm going and what I'm doing and who I'm, who I'm related to and who's close to me. And uh-huh. so I said that um, I needed to go and obtain some additional marketable skills. And so the supply diversity position came across my desk through my God sister. She goes, this is you, Robin, all over. And as I said before, I had to Google the word because I had never heard of supplier diversity. But what I found, Brenda, is this. 60 to 70, historically, 60 to 70 percent of span in any company is facilities, real estate, Mm. right? They're either remodeling, repositioning, new office, you know, remodel, put repositioning, moving folks around. And so I understood the supply chain for construction. Uh, which, uh, which, uh, which really helped me to move into supplier diversity. Right. And so, and, and the, the idea that I'm not afraid to raise my hand and say, that's not right. You know, Mm -hmm. I don't believe in the word fair, fair is where the pigs and the hogs are. I use the word equitable. Right. We're just looking for an equitable playing field. We're just looking for an equitable opportunity. And so fair doesn't exist to me. Because what's so-called fair for one group is unfair for another group. So, mm. so I use the word equitable. And so, um, so, so when you look at supply chain, you know, I, in 2006, when I got into supplier diversity, I realized it's not supplier diversity, it's supply chain inclusion. And I believe in making these new words. So I created this word called supply chain inclusion, and that's how I spoke to folks. That's how I imparted the information to my internal partners and to the community, mm-hmm. that this is supply chain inclusion. There is a supply chain. A pencil has a supply chain. The lead, the wood, the printing on it, the little band that holds the eraser, the eraser, everything has a supply chain. And we have to understand that supply chain in order to be able to participate in it. And then you have to find out where do you fit in that supply chain right. and don't overreach because what tends to happen, people overreach on where they think they belong on the supply chain, and then they can't perform, and then they mess it up. Because if one, one person of color messes up, that means the whole kit and caboodle is, is kicked to the curb, you know, that type of thing. To me, what I learned from this, this is how we create generational wealth. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Real estate and owning being the owner or participating in the supply chain as an owner and or even as an employee, understanding that, mm-hmm. that you're a part of a supply chain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, what's, what's, so, what's so fascinating about that, when I was reflecting on the last time that, you know, we reconnected, it mm-hmm. really had to do with that space of wealth and, and yes. what created the sort of systemic inequalities that led to this wealth gap. When I was thinking about you coming on today, um, I, I wanted you to really speak to what you've, you've actually started to do that, speak to how this supply chain inclusion 
actually addresses the issue of wealth inequality and how you're talking about the issue of not fairness, but equity Equity. Mm -hmm. and addressing equity from a supply chain inclusion perspective, how that actually starts to shrink, at least puts in a position to shrink that, that wealth gap. Can you talk a little bit about like what, what your thoughts are around that? Well, my thoughts are this, um, you know, part of it has to do with the fact that think about it, America's systems, and I've really been on this lately, America's systems are from the fifties and the sixties, right? Mm. You know, and in order for the government to be fixed, the government is going to have to partner with the private sector. The government is going to have to bring in private sector individuals, but the way the government is set up, you got to take, you know, you got to fill out this and you got to take 18 tests and then the test has to come back and then you have to have interview and then you have to have another test and then you have to have another interview. So, you know, we've set up these systems that don't allow people to participate. And then we set up these systems where nepotism, you know, I used to tell my kids all the time, you know, when I was in at the University of Missouri and I used to see some stuff. I mean, I really, really used to see some stuff. And that's when people really, 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 really had money. Right. Not this fluffy money that folks have now. I'm talking about real money. And I would tell them all the time, certain individuals get to tear their butt wide open and their parents get to sew it right back up and put them right where they're supposed to be because their uncle, cousin, friend, godfather is the board chair, the president, blah, 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 blah. They got all that on locked and loaded. We don't have that. So when we get up to bat, we got to bat a thousand. We got to bat a thousand. You know, in order to be included, you got to be, you know, batting a thousand. You have to be at a certain level. So wealth, the wealth gap is historical and, you know, nobody wants to talk about it, but it's straight up racism. You know, so that's why we're having all these challenges now, because people are starting to get it that my vote does count. And I mean, every little vote counts. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about, you know, from the local school board elections, the local elections and all of that. So what we're seeing is people are starting to be a bit more educated about it. Mm-hmm. And I think that we need to be more, we need to create more narrative around it so that people have a better understanding. Because it, because what happens is I'm not the sharpest pencil in the box. I was the first person in my family to go to college. I really had no one. I, I, my mother had a beauty shop. So I would listen to all of these wonderful stories from these women. And these women were housekeepers and bank presidents and the principal of the school. You know, they ranked the whole gamut of women were there. So I'm listening to all of this good stuff that these sisters tell in the beauty shop and the barbershop. You know, that's our community, right? And so I'm listening to them and I'm hearing my mother talk about exposure. I'm hearing my mother talk about watching soap operas in order to understand what a bar mitzvah was or a bat mitzvah, you know, mm-hmm. to understand what a prom looks like and what you wear to prom, you know, understanding what a black tie dinner. You know, my mother had no mother. Mm-hmm. And so she put herself in a position to learn some things to teach her children, right? So it's on me. It is totally on me. I've taken it upon myself, my siblings, we've taken it upon ourselves to move that forward. And so with that, we become more wealthy, not necessarily financially. We become more wealthy with our knowledge, with our time, with our, with our, with our thoughts. And that means then that we are going to obtain the funds that go with that. But it right. takes time. It takes time. And part of the time is when, you, when you're in your downtime, then how do you spend that time? Are you right. reading? Are you reading? Right. Are you listening to these podcasts? Are you, you know, you creating this podcast brings those voices that folks have seen, but they've never heard their story. 
right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, when I listen to Michael, uh, my folks are from Arkansas. And I'm like, well, that might be my cousin on my mama's side. I need to figure that out, you know, because I like I like to collect folks with brains. You know, I, I love that. You know, there's a a quote by C.S. Lewis about, you know, you don't have to be the most intelligent person; just surround yourself with intelligent people. You know, right. so that's historically that's what I've done, and I think that's what we all need to do. We need to expand our circle, and we need to share our stories, and we need to share our testimony, and and don't just assume that because that person is driving a nice car, like I drive an E three hundred and fifty, it was given to me. The mm. car was actually given to me with the pink slip from someone who said, "I owe you," and I'm looking at her like, "You owe me what?" She goes, "No, I owe you for what you've done for me. I owe you." And so again, people uh-huh. say, "Well, you drive a nice car." Well, yeah, it was a gift. And then they look at me crazy. I'm like, no, it was a gift. It was actually given to me. You wow. know? And so, so, so we look at wealth and we look at all we can see is the Jay-Z's and the Beyonce's and all of these filthy rich black folks. But there are some rich black folks who are not necessarily on the news. They're your next door neighbor. They're living down the street. They're living around the corner. They go to your church. You know, they own property, you know, property. What I learned, Brenda, um, one of my first clients when I went to Sears Savings Bank was Don was um, um, Bus Mariani Development, Jerry Bus, uh-huh. the Lakers, and all of that. Uh-huh. Well, Jerry Bus was a chemical engineer. Wow. He was a chemical engineer. He and his best friend created a development company. We financed all those apartments in the Fox Hills. We financed that. He created apartments, and then he sold them to Don Sterling, and took that money and bought the Lakers, the tennis team, the soccer team, the Forum, and all of that. And so what he did is he morphed himself from being the nerd, Jerry mm-hmm. Buzz, chemical engineer, to Mr. Fly Guy. You know, that's why we <laughs> polyester with the comb over hair. He was still a nerd. <laughs> his, his daughter probably kill me when she hears this, but you, I hope she does hear it, you know. But he was, a man. he was a wonderful man. So what you do is you try to identify those role models. In those people like a Michael Lawson who will tell you their story, Brenda mm-hmm. Ross Dillon who will tell you her story. Mm-hmm. You know, this, this, we got stripes on our backs. So yeah. the wealth gap can be closed as long as we tell these stories. And then we're, we're, you're willing to do the work. You know, there is no wizard. You know, there is no magic wand. There is nobody coming with a cape. You know, it, it ha- it's hard work. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I always say this. Black people are the surviving race. When you think about what we've accomplished with how we were treated and what we could have done, but we didn't, we're spiritual, moral beings. And and sometimes that has, um, it's been beneficial for us. And sometimes it's been detrimental. But I say, stay the course, stay the course, because good always wins. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. And you have been so incredibly generous with sharing information um, and and taking what you learned in corporate America, uh, not just the the pure academics, but the nuances of the dynamics of corporate America and and apply that to how you approach supplier diversity and the advice that you give, you know, to the corporate leaders who you're influencing as well as the business owners, your, your advice to corporate, what generally are your conversations like with those decision makers in the Fortune 500 companies as you are advising them about how they can create a supply chain inclusion program? 
the beautiful thing is this, you know, as I said before, I've had these guys, these white guys who truly have believed in me and they gave me the space to be Robin, to be mm-hmm. the, just the regular, I'm a regular sister, you know? And so they gave me the space to be that knowing that I wouldn't abuse it. You yes. know, um, I wouldn't get us in trouble, you know, but if there was trouble, I'm raising my hand. I need some help, you know, kind of thing. But they, they gave me autonomy to operate. Right. And so with that, I, as I said before, right before this call, I was on a call about an acquisition merger happening here in California. I've been on several of those calls. Mm -hmm. And in this particular situation, the CEO didn't want to take the call with the group. Right. And now that he's getting pushback, he wants to have a conversation. Right. So Mm -hmm. really, it becomes a thing of you can't be scared. You can't be scared. You have to tell we're the ones in the trenches. You know, the worker bees are the ones that build these companies that folks want to acquire. Right. The the worker bees are are the folks that, you know, I tell people all the time, make sure you are friends with the security guard, all the admin and the mailroom clerk, because at the end of the day, they know everything that's going on in the company. They know the flavor of the company and they know when the CEO is pissed off. They know when the executives are ticked off. They know how well the board meeting went and what you know, what's going to come down the pipe. They know that. So when I'm talking to these folks, um, I just say they need to widen their circle. Right. Mm -hmm. They need to remember their first day on the job and how nervous they were and concerned they were. They need to remember that you need your entire team to make something happen. Mm-hmm. And I, I think one of the biggest pissers for me right now is that people look at your resume, they hire you, they bring you in and they want to micromanage. And mm-hmm. I don't mean micromanage. I'm talking about micromanaging the weeds, you know, go to back to the C-suite and get your job done. And let us do the job that you've hired us to do and let us report to you. Right. If you see something on the report that you don't like or you don't understand, let's have a conversation about it. But don't come down from your ladder into our space and then you're going to tell us what to do. And you're not dealing with these people every day. You're Mm -hmm. not interacting with these folks every day. Mm -hmm. And I think that corporate leaders and politicians, these folks who are in leadership roles, they tend to forget what it was like. Mm. So now you want to dictate from on high, but you don't really know what's going on day to day. You know, one of the questions that I had to one of these CEOs was, help me understand what your underwriting guidelines are. You know, have you guys thought about what your underwriting guidelines are going to look like? Because because of redlining and and, and other kinds of racial uh, disparities, we are not in your queue. So let's talk about those people with the six figure incomes who don't have the six figure income because of COVID. What do those underwriting guidelines look like now? Wow. What is that going to look like? You know, and what are you going to do when they can't make their payment? You know, what does their forbearance look like compared to what we've had for forbearance? You know, and so what, where, where is the parity in that? Right. Mm-hmm. And so I think that these corporate leaders and these politicals and folks who are in charge, they need to go back and remember the connections, the visions and the folks who helped them to get there. Right. Um, I'll tell you one quick story in supplier diversity. Um, Years ago, I went to the U.S. Hispanic Chamber of Commerce conference for the first time. And Ernst & Young was the corporate title sponsor. And the CEO was in a fireside chat, um, Don uh, Jim Turley. And I'm I'm on the front row. I'm just one of those front row kind of people. I'm not sitting Mm -hmm. in the back unless I'm trying to make a statement. And I'm going to sit in the back by the door. I've done that before, too. And so um, I said to him, you know, it, it was going fabulously, you know, and they got all of these ERGs and, you know, they're, they're spending money and they're taking care of their staff and everybody's happy. And this conference is going really, really well. And when it was over, I went up and went, waited till everybody was done. 
And I said, Mr. Turley, he said, yeah. I said, Jim Turley. I said, Turley Development. And he looked at me like, how you like, like, how you know that? Because this is, this is old, stinky, dirty, long time development company in Missouri, right? In St. Louis. Mm. And so um, I sat to him, I said, uh, first I said, are you a Cardinal fan? He goes, yeah. And I said, you're from St. Louis. He goes, yeah, Turley Development. He goes, yeah. And I said, he goes, how do you know that? I said, so I, what I want to do is intrigue you. Because what he said was, one, a person asked him, how did he get here? You know, how did he get here supporting supply chain inclusion, right? Mm-hmm. And, 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 and ERGs and this whole DEI stuff before it had initials. And so he said, my 14-year-old daughter, my little princess, came to me and told me I was pale, male, and stale. <laughs> he said, it shocked me, the idea that my princess, my daughter, who thinks I walk on water, called me pale, male, and stale. And he said he had not realized that this rainbow coalition of friends that was coming in and out of his house that were her friends, he wasn't acknowledging these changes Mm. that were happening in his own household. And so he had to go and fix that, right? So I think that when it becomes personal for them, I think that these, these, um, these people who get to check more than one box, you know, we can only check the black box, but some people can check white and this and white and that. They will all, and I tell everybody, if you can check the white box, check the white box, you know, to help you on your senses, you know? But, but he learned from that, that if I don't get up to speed, then I'm going to lose what's important to me. And I right. think that this personal piece is, is, is added to that. And so when you look at supply chain, historically procurement people, Head down, folks. They only this guy only buys paper. This guy only buys travel. This person only does HR. Now, for me, when I got into supply diversity, the whole mission was to stop operating in silos and start operating collaboratively. Mm-hmm. Because marketing needs this stuff. The sales team needs this stuff. You know, these are the things that people are looking for in the marketplace. Do you have supplier diversity or do you have a diverse board? Do you have a diverse team? And what I love about these next generation young people, they're not taking it on the chin anymore. They won't stay. Mm-hmm. So they, so when America's talking about they can't find anybody to hire, look at what the challenge is as to why people aren't coming back. Mm-hmm. Child care transportation. There's so many more layers to this than just going to get that check. You know, you get that check has to stretch in order to take care of the child care, your home cost, your, your transportation expenses, medical expenses, and the idea that these companies don't want to provide benefits. Well, you know, don't you want a healthy employee? You know, that type of thing. Kaiser was one of my clients when I worked for WeBank. And I I always say my tagline for this consulting practice is I've been behind the curtain. And as we talked earlier, Mm -hmm. we've been behind the curtain. I know how these companies operate. And so the benefit that I have is that I've been in corporate America. I was in financial services. I came out of construction and facilities, which is the largest bucket of spin in a lot of these companies. And then I went into supply chain inclusion and brought all of that Mm -hmm. stuff with me. And so it becomes an issue of, you have to look at the landscape mm-hmm. and in looking at the landscape, what are the challenges and how can we, how can we work on the challenges? Because the stuff that's working, leave it alone, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. leave it alone. If it's working, leave it alone. Let's go work on something that's, that's keeping that from being successful over the long haul. Yeah. I so appreciate that you, you focus on the, the fundamentals of excellence. Yes. That, um, what you did, how that knowledge led to 
other knowledge, how, what class you took, all of those things. But I think the, the cherry on top of the Sunday, if you will, is the value that you understand that your background and your perspective brings to all of this, mm -hmm. that we, many times we see our value strictly as the academic side of it, right? The, yes. the underwriting, the, the, <laughs> the work experience, but overlay that with your own cultural perspective mm -hmm. and how that actually contributes to the betterment of the company, to your, to your clients, yes, the corporate ones, as well as the, and, and that yes. is something that I think we all, that many businesses miss, many businesses and people of color, the appreciation for what that cultural experience, how it enriches the people and the environment yes. around them. So you, you do that so well. Well, you know, the thing is, is that, you know, as I said before, I, I've, I, because I'm a very confident, I'm, I'm a very confident person. My mother built this person, you know, the Lord sent me here with the package and Rose wrapped it up. Right. <laughs> and so, so she gave me a level of confidence that said, I don't care. Go. I don't care. You're going to go. And I don't care. You're the only one, you're the black one, you know, I don't care. You are going to go. And when you, you better go and bring some back. You know, you're not just going to go, you're going to bring something back and you better. And my mother's an Aquarian. You know, my mother is a question asking person analytics. So I had to be able to go there and bring all of the information back. Yes. And I knew I was going to be put up for charges if I didn't. Right. And so that you listen to these conversations. We, we talked about this earlier. Wisdom and knowledge comes with time. Right. Mm -hmm. And so these young people who disregard the, their grandparents and the seniors around them and their experiences and don't sit at their feet and hear that stuff. Mm -hmm. You're missing something. And then, you know, you know, this whole new thing about bringing your authentic self. Well, that's all you got. Yeah. You know, everything that create a buzzword for everything, but literally that's all you got. You know, I tell people in my workshops that the Lord, you know, and I, I get very, I'm a very spiritual person. So if you don't like it, I'm not trying to offend anybody, but this is what works for me. And that's, I think, I love what you just said. I know what works for Robin. Yeah. And I know to keep it simple. Mm -hmm. Because if you keep it simple, then everybody can find something tangible from that, right? And so we learned how to play, you, we learned how to play this game by being behind the curtain, by being mistreated. We have these stripes on our back. You know, and I say that, and I mean that from the bottom of my heart. Black people have stripes on their back. I was born in the 50s. I grew up in the 60s and the 70s. And then I moved to Los Angeles, right? I came from Missouri, just north of the Mason-Dixon line. So tell mm -hmm. me, have I seen some stuff? I've seen some stuff. I yes. was at the University of Missouri when they would burn a Black dog in effigy of Black folks every year in, at the fraternity house. And it was okay, mm -hmm. you know. I went to school with Senator Claire McCaskill. I was a tiger hostess with her. And so and the beautiful thing for me, though, Brenda, I think this is my blessing that the Lord gave me. I don't re I remember everything. Mm -hmm. I am an advocate storyteller. You know, right. I was talking to my little seven year old granddaughter. I actually can name every teacher I had in elementary school and what wow. they, what their new what their mores was and how they carried themselves and what they taught me, because that those people think about it when when I was in school. 
I was at an all black school in basically a black neighborhood that that butted up to the, the you know the dividing line and then it became the white neighborhood. And so I was at this all black school with all of these black teachers, but they were educators. They were not teachers. They were educators. You know, we had poetry. I learned how to swing dance, cha-cha, box step, waltz in the third grade. In the third grade. So that meant that. It's, it's in me, you know what I'm saying? Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and again, we are allowed to be afraid, but you have to keep moving. You've got to keep moving. You yeah. got to keep moving. Yeah, yeah. What yeah. What's been so powerful about our conversation, it just so fits within the mission of the podcast, and that is to bring awareness, to inspire and to bring about solutions. And you talk about um, certainly the, the power of inspiration through telling your own stories, the power of education, um, just through the fact that you bring your knowledge and importance of being technically competent. Yes. And then um, just how you, um, and then you wrap it up in, into, <laughs> quite frankly, a really great story, right? And and that story is a solution. Yeah. Because yeah. sometimes we do have a tendency to have conversations that become a reiteration of what has been told before, the yeah. stories, the, the bad things, but nobody brings about a solution. I love that you found a way to make supplier diversity and the effectiveness of supply diversity really focus on equality, equity. Yeah. You know, how do you close that equity gap? Yeah. And so I, you know, one of the things that you, one of the things that you asked me, what should women and minority businesses do to be effective and sustainable? You know, I, I, it's so critically important. And you know, this as a banker, you need a banking relationship and it's not just, you know, ATM, the branch manager, I'm talking a business banker. I think that you have to align with these SBDCs, these small business development centers, because they get a lot of information, they handhold, there's business advisors there for every industry that you're involved in. And then you have to allocate time for professional development. You know, again, as I said before, nobody, nobody took me under their wings and sent me to this class or that class. But what I tell young people nowadays is put it in your professional development plan. If you're working for a company and you see a class that you want to take, put it in there. That's how I got my minority program of real estate development at USC paid for. That's how I got my ABLIA African-American Board Leadership Institute training paid for. I put it in my professional development plan because if you're not going to send me, then I need to identify these classes and these these, these, um, courses that are going to help me elevate my skill set. And then um, I think it's so critically important that these business owners stop just chasing contracts. Stop Mm. chasing contracts. What tends to happen is they chase the contract, they get the contract, they don't forget about their back office. You know, can their systems handle it? Can they, or can they, if they, if they do a good job, can they expand? You know, do they have the capacity and the scalability to expand? Because that the corporations don't, they're not going to handhold you into that, right? On the flip side of it, then why not put people in these supplier uh, development programs? If you find, if you identify, you know, don't just put one, don't just put three, select 10 from 10 different industries, you know, and put them through a supplier development program. 
And then that can exponentially allow folks to, again, obtain wealth and start building wealth and also, you know, knock down these barriers of non-success, as I call it. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of times as I look at supply diversities of managers nowadays, it gets it concerns me that these companies are hiring people as gatekeepers. You know, just keep them away from us. Keep them from, you know, needing to be able to talk to somebody in procurement. And so what I say to these young supplier diversity managers, you have to have a relationship with procurement. The blessing that I had is I actually sat in the, I was on the procurement team as a supplier diversity manager. That's a win-win right there. Because at the end of the day, that's where the opportunity is, right? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And they're having this conversation about, you know, this contract is five years out and, you know, and they got two extensions. Well, that means it might be seven, 10 years before that sector is available for bid. That's information that a person needs. Mm-hmm. Don't just tell them to go to the portal and register and then I'll connect you with somebody. No, as a supply diversity manager, your job is to find out internally what's going on and share that externally. And then work externally to identify suppliers that fit those opportunities and bring them to the table. One of the things that I do hear uh, from a number of businesses, they they get certified, they go to the corporation, they get excited because they become one of the approved uh, vendors. Vendors. And um, crickets. Yeah. And then, and you can't call anybody. Uh, and and no one ever responds to your phone calls. Um, and to your point, the is is the goal really to keep people away, right? To pacify them by saying that they are on a list, yeah. but they really never a- actually get business. So this whole thing about inclusion, supply chain inclusion, isn't about the process. It is about the people. We are still dealing with people, their lives, their hopes, their dreams. Mm-hmm. You know, how, how do they? Uh, support themselves, build wealth for themselves and for their families and for their kids going mm-hmm. forward. It really is such a people business. It's a people business and there are so many points of entry, right? You yeah. know, I, I tell my supplier, my companies that I work with, be, be very mindful of who you hire because mm. whoever answers your phone, they have to be marketing and business development. You can't just hire somebody just to answer the phone, right? You don't have that kind of money. So, you know, make sure you're building a team so that the teamwork makes the dream work, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, my pastor always says that the, the Lord only gives the vision to one person and everybody else's job is to capture that vision. So what if you have people on your team who have not captured the vision? They're just there to pick up a check. And you're a small business. Yeah. You're a minority-owned business. You're a woman-owned business. You don't have that bandwidth to be able to just have somebody there picking up a check. And what tends to happen is that, oh, well, like I'm, I'm getting ready to fire them. I'm going to fire them. I'm going to get rid of them. Well, do that. Do them a favor and yourself a favor. Mm-hmm. Because my, my Larry Rossi told me many years ago, he goes, Robin, just deliver no early and often. Yeah. Because the detriment of not doing that, the situation gets worse. Right. And then he said, and as the as the bank, then we're the ones with the deep pockets. So we're the ones that's going to have to pay. Right. And so people think sometimes that I mean, I'm not being mean. I'm telling you what what I'm hearing from on the inside. Mm-hmm. Don't listen to this. My mother always says she says she wish she had given her daughter's girl voice. Well, OK, Brenda, you got a deep voice like me. Right? <laughs> <laughs> we can't change that. And I can't change the, the tone of my voice. But hear what I'm saying instead of being concerned about the tone of my voice or the way I'm delivering it. 
right? So I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to soft pedal this stuff because this is business. We don't have time to soft pedal it. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you really need to be earning your stripes on your back. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you know, the way I started off uh, introducing you, your last uh, comment reminded me of this. Robin is known for her advocacy, her coaching, her collaboration, and her straight talk. (laughs) (laughs) It works for me. Which is so, and and it has worked for the numerous people whose lives you have you have touched and you have inspired. So speaking of inspiration, I always end every interview with the two ways that I find inspiration among many. Uh, one is with a song and one's with a quote. So I always ask uh, the guests to give me their favorite quote, uh, a quote that's meaningful to them uh, and uh, a song. Oh, you know, I've been thinking about this. This is, those are really hard because I live my, I've, as a kid growing up, I've lived my life on mantras, right? On scriptures, on prose, on poetry, you know, uh-huh. little things to remind me of stuff. And, um, and I said, okay, so the quote that I'm going to give is one that I made up. Oh, okay. I have two of them. One is, you know, Dorothy Height is sitting right here on my desk and says, we African-American women seldom do just what we want to do but always do what we have to do. I am grateful to have been in a time and a place where I could be a part of what was needed. Isn't that wonderful? She said that when she was called, she was called to glory at 98 years old, but she said that towards the end of her life. And I said, that is, that's us. That is us. That is truly us. But the one that I made up is confidence comes from doing the best that you have, not from being perfect. 80% equals 100% because we all have a 20% power to work on. Right. So if I get to 80 percent, I'm a, I'm batting a thousand for as I'm concerned, because there are some things I still need to work out and work on. And then regarding a song, Brenda, oh, my God, Brenda, I am, that's really, really hard. Um, I, I what I wrote down, I believe spirituals. OK, when I, when, when I and I'm not talking about gospel music. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about spirituals, the ones that we all learned in church that aren't popular anymore. But okay. the words to those songs is what got our people through 400 years of slavery. Right. Mm-hmm. So I believe in slavery. And, and then the, the other undercurrent of that is Delta Blues. My mother's from Clarksdale, Mississippi. So I love Delta Blues. You know, we're talking about Muddy Waters, Bobby, Beebe, Albert, you know, all of them kind of guys. Because again, <laughs> Because again, these are church people right. who've turned it into this new genre called the blues, right. but it really, again, tells our story. And, uh, and so my, my, my most recent one that I just, it just makes me crazy. I just cry every time I hear it is Rance Allen singing something about the name Jesus. Oh, um. He has this, this, these quirks in his voice. Ah, ooh, ee, ee, ooh. It just, it just, it just, it, it tears me up every time I hear it. And it's the one that he did it with. He was in, he was live with um, Kurt Franklin uh, and, and Kurt had him to come out. And he's and, and right after that, he got his wings and it broke my heart because it, that voice, that, that gospel spiritual male voice is so, um, it, it gets you down to your toes. You know? 
I think you, I think you did a good job with the song. <laughs> <laughs> that that one right there, something about the name Jesus. But mm, uh, mm, mm. I, I love you know what 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 really sort of threads through everything that you say is there's a purpose behind everything you say and everything you do, and I always believe that the why is so much more important than the what. Yeah. And, um, and that's what makes you so impactful and so inspiring. So, well, you know, that, that why piece, when we first started out, you know, um, my mother, I used to tell my siblings all the time, you know, you you have a mother who's never heard her mother's voice. She don't know what she smells like. She never got to ask her what's her favorite color. So, you know, this person is coming to the table with everything. Our parents, Mm. especially black parents or people of color, your parents brought everything to the table that they had and gave that to you. And no, it might not have been a hundred percent. It probably was 80% and they still had the 20% pile to work on, but they gave you everything that they had and sent you off. Right. And and set you up so that you can go off. Mm -hmm. And some people move further than others, but my mission in life, my, my why Mm-hmm. Is because I, the Lord blessed me every day to wake up clothed in my right mind, to pay homage to my heritage, to pay mm-hmm. homage to my mother, to pay homage to those people from Clarksdale, Mississippi, to pay homage to the John Lewis's of the world. And, and, and again, because I'm 66, when I look at what has happened over the last 55, 56 years in my lifetime, and I have four grandchildren and looking at what they're having to deal with. The mission is to try to help get some of this stuff taken care of, right? Yeah. Illuminate. If nothing else, we can illuminate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you're doing just that. I'm trying to. You're doing this. This is wonderful. <laughs> well, I so appreciate, you know, I could talk to you forever. Yeah. Which, which means that I'll have to call you off. <laughs> you know it. But thank you so, so much. Uh, for Thank spending you for the time and for really imparting your wisdom and also for leaving us inspired. No question. Take care now. Be All well. Right. I All love right. you, girl. Bye bye. Thank you again for joining us today. We would love to share additional tools and strategies that can help you make the best decisions for your career, or to build a dynamic and forward-thinking environment. Please visit the services page on our website, therossdoolinggroup.com.